My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames cast. Um, if I sound even better on this episode, it's because I've got a dose of man flu, so I do apologise for um, sounding incredibly sexy. Um, I'm just going to crack on with it, nothing else really much more to say. Still in lockdown, obviously. Currently working my way through the Criterion Ingmar Bergman uh, box set, which has been a real delight. Not sure... I might even do an episode once I've finished it ranking my Ingmar Bergman films based on the ones that I've seen. So we'll wait and see on that one. But I'm going to crack on with this episode, which is a look at Alan Clark's Elephant. Were you in last night? Yeah, sure you know I was. What's it got to do with you? For a period of just over four years, from 2014 to 2019, I was in a relationship with a girl from Ireland. She was an Irish Catholic who lived in South Armagh in a small village around a gorgeous mountain, and it was a truly beautiful part of the world. It sounds daft to say, but it actually felt ancient, even kind of mystical in a way, and I loved every minute of going over there. At the bottom of her road, there was a bar, and it wasn't all that much to look at, and good lord, um, the interior could generously be described as a bit dated. Yeah, I kind of loved it. I've never really been one for designer bars, and there's something refreshing I find about a place that simply is what it is without attempting to be anything else. And this was a bar where men, and I mean men, just went to drink, and that was the end of it. Yet this bar had a history. On the 14th of May 1977, a British intelligence officer called Robert Nycrack travelled to this bar undercover. Claiming he was in the IRA and a member from Belfast, he began singing rebel songs and soon his behaviour began to raise suspicions. He was promptly taken out of the bar, beaten in a car park, driven over the border, tortured and shot in the back of the head, and his body has never been found to this day. Several men were tried and convicted of the murder. One person is still wanted in connection with it and apparently is currently living in America. What was bizarre was that every now and then I would see some of those people who were convicted of his killing and on one occasion actually exchanged pleasantries with one of these men whilst walking around the mountain. We both expressed our annoyance at people who dropped litter and discussed what a great thing the mountain was for getting out and getting some exercise. Whilst we were talking, I was never really overly bothered by who he was or what he had done, and I was probably slightly nervous, I have to confess, but after we parted companies, I did begin to wonder, did he ever think about that night? And what did he think about it? Did he have guilt about it? Was he glad he did it? Would he do it again? The troubles, as they are unofficially known as, ended with the Good Friday peace agreement, but I don't think it tells the whole story. Despite the peace, ghosts remain in Northern Ireland. The person I met on the mountain saw a good-natured exchange between two people, one of which had tortured and murdered another human being. And that's the thing about Northern Ireland. The troubles are always there, lurking in the shadows and in plain sight. Never have I been to a place whereby people are so open about how they identify, 
simply driving from one place to another, you'll see a huge tricolour of the Irish flag. And then a few minutes later, Union Jack bunting and red and white and blue painted curbsides. People there want to show you who they are and what they are. And for all the peace agreements and the apparent moving on, the troubles still linger away in people's consciousness. Unsolved murders, collusion, the disappeared, the scars from the time are still raw and still very much on display. And Northern Ireland is a false country, created for the worst reasons imaginable, and I do often wonder how tenuous the peace actually is. I simply don't believe that everyone has just forgotten and forgiven, and given the adequate motivation and cause, I do believe Northern Ireland could quite easily revert back to the days of the Troubles, with a generation of young men eager to prove themselves. What often beggars belief is the wanton cruelty of the Troubles. A murder would trigger a reprisal, followed by escalations, following by more murder. The reasons could easily be given. IRA or UVF membership, fundraising, informers, RUC officers, soldiers, terrorists, public figures, sympathisers, you name it, and in a lot of cases, no other reasons than people were killed for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Somewhere, someone would come up with a reason to kill someone else, a never-ending cycle of murder. Violence fascinates us, and we do celebrate it in our culture. Netflix loves, and I mean loves, a good murderer serial killer documentary. And it glorifies those doing the killing. You're supposed to be interested. You're not supposed to be interested at all in the victims, and they don't really make much effort to show you anything about them. And I personally find it to be deeply troubling. It's a conversation I think for another episode. But I think Northern Ireland is a good example of the effects of violence on a society. It is there in Northern Ireland. It is entirely probable that if you are one of the family members of the three and a half thousand odd people killed, you might easily bump into someone who knows or even did the killing of your relative. And there are various murals to the main participants everywhere. A poster of Martin McGuinness will either elicit violent hatred of a known terrorist or undying adulation for a freedom fighter and politician, such as the duality of opinions you come across. It's a fascinating place from a societal point of view, and I will always have a strong affection for it. But I do often go back to that meeting on the mountain. I wonder who knows the truth when they meet that person what is said as he leaves the shop, or does he ever worry that one day someone might come for him? And let's be let's be perfectly honest, he is someone, like a lot of people in Northern Ireland, who have blood on their hands. In 2019, I watched a Mark Cousins film, 50 Years of the Troubles, A Journey Through. It's another quite brilliant film by Cousins, and I must recommend um, the film I Am Belfast, which was made my top 10 list a few years ago, which is a symphony to that town, which I absolutely adored. But during the film I watched in 2019, he showed a clip from Alan Clark's Elephant. Now, Clark was one of the foremost filmmakers working on British television in the 70s and 80s. His films were typically violent, confrontational, unpleasant, funny at times, daring, and very experimental, and none so more than 1989's Elephant. Produced by Danny Boyle, shown on the BBC, Elephant is a 40-minute film that basically consists of a person walking up to someone else and shooting them the camera more often than not lingering on the bloodied corpse. This is repeated no less than 18 times with virtually no dialogue. You have no idea who anyone is, which side they are on, nothing. No reason is given for people being shot and crucially do not know whose side anyone is actually on. Boyle at the time was working in Northern Ireland for the BBC and flew home at the weekends to London's. His experience of the troubles was that he could see that what was going on was largely being unreported back on the mainland. The murders were almost ignored entirely by the mainstream press. 
and more often than not someone would be shot, the perpetrator is never caught, and for all intents and purposes most people outside of Northern Ireland were none the wiser. The fact of the matter was, civilians were being killed in large numbers. There were st these were statistics, crimes never to be solved, and Boyle wanted to make a film that showed what was actually happening. Enter Clark, who immediately was attracted to the project, and this was also not his first foray into making films about the Troubles. In 1985 he had made a film called Contact about a squad of paratroopers in South Armagh, although it was actually filmed in Yorkshire. Contact is an observational piece, it's a gripping film, there again virtually no dialogue, just a very real and at times tense work where you feel that the patrol with the soldiers constantly seeing threat and danger in abandoned cottages or a discarded clip from a machine gun that could possibly be a booby trap. It's disorientating, frightening, and you don't f particularly feel anything for the soldiers you are watching. They're not heroic, there's no banter between any of them, just men doing their job in a terrifying place. It's worth seeking out and is a good precursor for watching Elephant. Unlike Contact, Elephant was filmed in Northern Ireland and mostly in and around Belfast where most of the killings were happening. The Belfast I came to know and love was a lively place, not the most pretty of cities in Ireland, that crown would have to go to Galway, but it was vibrant and had some nice bars and a real sense of history from the shipbuilding to of course the troubles with its murals to the various icons on either side. In Elephant we see Thatcher's Belfast in 1989, this is a shadow of the city it once was, vast abandoned warehouses, one of the most, I think one of the most defining images of her reign. It's not explicitly said in Elephant, in fact almost nothing is said in the entirety of it, but I did wonder how complicit was the Conservative government in the nihilism that was pervaded through Northern Ireland in those times. By taking away jobs, industry, opportunity and hope, especially amongst the working classes, and let's be honest, the livelihood of males, had Thatcher and the Conservatives aided and abetted the recruitment of paramilitaries? Where would you go? What would you do? It was bad enough in parts of Britain not torn apart by sectarian violence. It might be a stretch, but I think I began to notice this disconnection with society in the purpose of the gunmen that we see in Elephant. We never find out their names, nor do we any of the victims. As they march through the deserted industrial landscape, I couldn't help but wonder if the emptiness of these landscapes was a silent accomplice in the murder we are about to watch. A vicious political ideology weaponising the minds of a disaffected males, desperately searching for a meaning to life that they find in the murder of their perceived enemies. Walking in Northern Ireland has a particular relevance, perhaps not seen anywhere else in the world. People's right to walk and where they walk have been fought over for decades. The Orange Order taken on an absurdist vision when I was growing up. They looked ridiculous to me. I always wondered how hard it was not to walk through an area that would clearly piss a load of other people off. And more often than that, where the Orange Order would walk would, would start and escalate sometimes with lethal consequences. Yet it mattered, or at least it mattered to them. It was walking with meaning and a purpose. In Elephant, the walking takes on purpose and meaning too. It's a recurring theme in Clark's work. And, he uses, and here he uses long Steadicam shops with cubic Steadicam regular John Ward that rank among the most impressive I have ever seen. He uses an ultra-wide lens to make the corridors even more cavernous and there's something uniquely interesting about Steadicam or follow shots as they are used in films. They are neither first person or third person, that is they are not from a character point of view or angle such as the side or front. In the third person, the focus of a viewer's attention is more often not located on the face of or the subject or subjects. 
In Photoshop, we cannot see a subject's face. In Ergo, we have nothing to focus on or discern intention or emotion. We are simply becoming observers to the subject, fixated on their movement, dragging us along with them. What we do in our heads is assume that by the nature of following, we are heading from one place to another. In simple terms, we are heading from A to B with an assumption that B will offer some kind of conclusion to the subject's journey. And Clark mixes up who we are following. Sometimes it's the murderer, sometimes it's the victim. In scene five, we see two men walking along in a park. The purpose of their walk is fast. There's no dialogue, just the sound of the footsteps on the soundtrack. In the distance, we see someone approaching. Is it to be their victim? We assume that because there is two of them, that they are the murder team and this poor person approaching for whatever reason is about to be shot. Yet the man walks past them, past the camera. Then comes the fear. It is they who are about to be killed. And then it happens. The man who has walked past calmly reappears and shoots one of them whilst the other one runs for his life. In a sequence so short, the suspense generated it is almost unbearable. The relentless forward motion of the camera, as in other murders, gives a relentless feeling of momentum that we see over and over and only concludes in one outcome. There are tiny amendments to the formula of the scenes that go further to unsettle you into thinking you've got a hold on the film. In one of the murders, a group of young men in factory overalls are playing football. They kick the ball from one another, and in a rare moment of stylistic different, we see shots from afar as they kick the ball back and forward before another person joins the game. The man who has appeared asks one of the men playing football if he was in last night, to which he says he was. He is then shot. It's as close as we can get in the film to doing some detective work. Is it a trick question? Does the killer know full well where he was? Hence the shooting. Perhaps he's an informer. Perhaps the night before he was out killing someone and this is the reprisal. This scene is particularly harrowing as well, I found. Northern Ireland is a small community. People know each other from both sides of the divide and families are large and interconnected. When contact is removed, the film becomes a portal through which you find yourself inserting an interpretation into it. I imagine that the person being killed had colluded with the other side, and perhaps this was his own coming back to get him. Either way, you see a murder, another body, another family's life ruined, and it's so matter-of-fact that one has to use a saying that I despise, that is, it is what it is, but truly what it is, is a hideous murder. From the first murder on, Elephant challenge you, challenges you as to what to expect from narrative cinema. The first person we see, the first murder we see, shows someone walking to a swimming baths. He looks around the cubicles, and we're not sure if he's looking for someone in particular or just anyone. Is his prey going to be armed too? Will he fight back? Eventually, we come into a room. The person to die is a cleaner. His executioner stops walking, points and shoots before we linger on the corpse. Did he know the person who was about to kill him? There was a pause for sure. Were they friends, old enemies, acquaintances? Or was this just a case of the first unlucky person to be hanging around at the wrong time? Who knows, because Elephant is never going to explain what you see. We don't get characters. We get killers and victims. We don't get narrative. Did wonder if the first murder that we see and the ones that subsequently follow are the tit-for-tat escalations, but we never know. There's no score. There's no exposition. Nothing we would normally expect at all from a, from a typical film. But a film it is, and are films that rigidly defined as we think? Its simplicity is its genius. By dispensing with convention and formula, Clark sharpens your focus. You simply cannot look away or be distracted by anything other than the act itself. 
the constant repetition of killing becomes bleaker and bleaker. And don't forget that this was made at a time when there was no Good Friday Agreement, no negotiations, and it is a hopeless film in that regard. And one has to admire any filmmaker who is daring enough to make such a work. It's all worth noting that Elephant was not made for the cinema, it's a TV movie, and it almost feels like an art installation. And as a side note, I don't think I've ever seen a film art installation that I haven't found to be utterly insufferable. But anyway, getting back to Elephant. And whilst I was watching Elephant, I was reminded of how shocking violence on film can be. Like I said at the start of this episode, I really do not like the constant slew of Netflix serial killer films. I think they are vapid cheek exercises in Murder Celebration. I've attempted to watch a few only to give up at roughly the same time. And I don't think they really say anything of anything, they simply appeal to a very base human interest in murder. And clearly audiences are, hence the amount of content they get in this regard. Yet none of them for me really cover the tragedy of the victims, who are mainly for the part women. They do glamorise, or at least turn murder into entertainment. Elephant take violence and reminds you of just how utterly awful it actually is. You will also notice in the film that the streets are always empty, there are no witnesses to the killing. You become through the film a voyeur gliding through, gliding along with the assailants and the victims, seeing people shot at the petrol station in an office, and worst of all in one of the most harrowing scenes in the film, a gunman walking up to an injured man desperately trying to crawl away only for his would-be executioner to put a bullet in his head. It's unsettling on a visceral level because we know these type of killings actually happened. Elephant also reminds you that the troubles work their way through the entire class system. You can't just pretend that what was going on was going on in the working class community because no one in the film is safe. Clark conveys this in the houses we see, the terraced house, the office above the shop, and then who we assume is a person of importance as they seem to live in a large suburban home. The violence of the film therefore pervades every corner of society. It reminds you that in this time no one was safe money or position didn't buy you immunity from the troubles. There is also another form of escalation in the film where we start to see cars being used more and more in the killings. More if not the burnt out wrecks of cars would be found by the police in fields. One of the film's only missteps in, in the last killing in which they arrive in a Jaguar. It seems an extra, strangely extravagant choice of car or hardly inconspicuous but this is a minor nick. Well, that last killing does bring a suitably awful conclusion to proceedings. A man, either completely unaware or simply resigned to his acceptance, marches into a warehouse, faces a wall, and a gunman promptly shoots him in the back of the head. We know now that many of the deaths and the troubles were those of informers. More often than not, these people would disappear, with loved ones being f informed of their fate sometime after. They became known as the disappeared, and whether a client was alluding to this with this final murder, I don't know. Certainly there had been killings before, before the film was made, where the body was never found. And maybe this is a reference to those who knows I might be clutching at straws. But of course a film like this is uniquely personal to the viewer, and watch, after watching Elephant, my mind went back to a particular murder I read about during the Troubles of a woman called Jean McConville. McConville well, was a mother of 10 who disappeared in December 1972. It was alleged that she was an informer to the British Army and had been passing information along. McConville well, was taken across the border and shot in the back of the head. Her children received her purse in a ring and were subsequently split up by social services, one of whom ended up in an orphanage where he was beaten and starved and sexually assaulted by the people who ran it. Her body was eventually discovered in 2003 on a beach after a storm, 
whereupon she was reburied alongside her husband. No one has ever been convicted of Jean McConville's murder, although in 2014 a number of people were arrested and questioned about her death before being released due to lack of evidence. On the 30th of April 2014, Jerry Adams voluntarily arrived at a police station and was subsequently arrested and questioned for four days in relation to McConville's murder. He was released without charge, but her children have always been adamant he played a part in it. The reason I tell this story is because I think it is emblematic of the troubles and indeed the legacy of what Clark captures in the film. Go on Jerry Adams' Twitter account and you'll see a jovial, often very funny man. I believe him to be a man much to be admired, having helped bring peace about in Northern Ireland. Yet there is also another side to him, and it may be, just maybe, he did actually play a role in ordering the murder of McCon G. McConville or at least knows more than he is letting on about the murder of a single mother of ten. Elephant was made at a time when there was no end in sight to the killings, most of which were simply unknown outside of Northern Ireland. The killers in Elephant are fictitious in the context of the film, but we know such people existed and continue to go about their lives today, as evidenced by the man I met that day on the mountain. The ghosts of the troubles are still around, and people like Jerry Adams are polarising figures in the extreme, Yet Adams is living proof that, that the scenarios we see in Elephant can come to an end when the people pursue peace without ever surrendering their own principles. Yet Elephant is also a warning. It's a warning that decent, principled people can often resort to violence and murder as a means to an end. And as I said at the start of the episode, I don't think the troubles have really gone that far away. It's all still there. The awnings, the murals, the flags, the marches, the bonfires, the peace wall festering away. I have a real affiliation with the place, I love it and I miss it, and watching Elephant again made me fear for it. And it's a provocative film, an uncomfortable one, and rightly so it needs to be. It's also a timely reminder of what films can be and do outside the traditional sense of simply trying to entertain you. I must also recommend another film which is uh, the documentary No Stone Left Unturned by Alex Gibney which I think is a fascinating portrait of um, an investigation into a particularly gruesome uh, set of murders and the whole kind of subject of collusion and on that note that is going to be uh, that it for this episode of the 24 frames cast i hope you enjoyed it um you can get hold of elephant on the alan clark uh, blocks box set that came out um which is i think about 10 discs or something like that i've got it and it, it's got all his work on it highly recommended if you want more from the 24 Framescast, you can go to 24framescast.blogspot.com and if you go and click on the exclusive pages, um, there's an entire, I mean, going through the bomb films, there will be uh, Goldeneye going up quite soon there. I'll let you know when it does. Um, there will be more of the Masters of Cinema cast coming as well. Joachim and I have been recording. So um, until next time, uh, stay safe. Let's hope COVID goes away soon and uh, we can all get... The and we can all get back to normal and start going back to the cinema again. So many thanks for listening, and I'll be in contact again soon. Bye.